Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Season two, episode two, season two, Journeys into Whiteness. I am, as always, your host, Jimmy Lincoln, and I am here to try to dissect with as much information and entertainment as I possibly can. I'm here to try to dissect whiteness and white supremacy, and more importantly, how notions of whiteness and white supremacy are passed down from generation to generation, how these unwritten rules that exist around all of us in this miasma that none of us actually can see or feel, but we all depend on how these unwritten rules of whiteness are communicated to white children and adolescents, um, and pretty much everything under the sun relating to the social construct that is whiteness, and then all of the power dynamics that come out of that. But y'all know that because, as I mentioned, this is our, what, 12th total episode? We're already into our second season. And so if you're listening by now, my guess is this is not your first journey into whiteness with me as your guide and host. But if it is, I just gave you the long and the short of it of what we're trying to do here. And I know my faithful listeners are like, damn, I have to listen to some different remix version of this intro every time. And yes, yes, you do. I play, I record by the Joe DiMaggio mantra that you, that you should always as an entertainer or performer act as if there is somebody in your audience who has never seen you perform before. And if you do that, and you will never disappoint your audience or yourself. And while that might even be an apocryphal quote, it's pretty good advice to live by, right? Like always, always bring your best. So I digress. That's what we're doing here. Today, as we continue on the chronological journey through my memory, because... That's the whole point of this endeavor, right? For me to connect my personal experiences of whiteness and white supremacy and white privilege to broader processes and con- concepts and just events going on in general around the world, specifically in this country. But you know what I mean. Today, we have made our way, finally, good news for y'all, bad news for me, we have made our way to my middle school years. And I think I mentioned this back in episode one of of season two, but season two is going to be almost exclusively my adolescent and teenage years. And as I just alluded to, that's great news for my audience. Really bad news for my ego, because like everyone else, I was awkward as fuck during these years. Um, and because unlike everyone else, I made, or maybe like everyone else, but I don't think not quite to my level, I made some really, really cowardly, selfish, immature decisions as a middle schooler and high schooler. And though the majority of those didn't have to do with race, some of them did. And as is always the case, I try to be honest with y'all. I really, really do. Um... And it was a little easier maybe in season one when I was talking about events that happened when I was younger because, you know, having a camp counselor tell you as an eight-year-old that he's going to send you to the black summer camp to get beat up. Well, I can pretty much, regardless of how I reacted, I can pretty much put myself in the victim category in a story like that, right? I'm only eight. I don't know any better. I've been brainwashed by the poison that is whiteness. But... As I get older, right, it's harder to put me in that victim category. And that's part of what I want my listeners to think about, my white listeners, to think about how how whiteness and white supremacy, as odious as it is to many of you, and as horrific and disappointing as, and destructive as it is in many of your opinions, I want you to really focus on how you personally have contributed, not so much to its creation, but facilitated its its spread and its propagation, because um, I think we all all play a role 
in spreading whiteness and notions of white supremacy, no matter how liberal and progressive or quote unquote woke we might want to think we are. So middle school and high school, I think I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass myself and shame myself, but like always, I'm hoping that my honesty brings out some honesty on your part. Because ideally, as my audience grows and as people get a little more comfortable, by the time we get to later seasons, and I can't tell you how many seasons, but let's, you know, for argument's sake, let's say seasons four or five and beyond. By the time we get to those seasons, I want to just be devoting entire episodes to the stories that you all are sharing with me, to your own individual stories of whiteness, and just kind of create as large as possible, this dialogue, this conversation, I think that would be just just incredible. And maybe that's me biting off more than I can chew, or maybe that's me being overly optimistic. But that's ultimately my goal. Like, I'm not trying to perform seppuku every episode for y'all, ritual suicide, right? Like, I'm trying to to let my vulnerability, A, help me individually, because it does force me to really, really think and then act on some of the stories I share, but more importantly, to kind of, I don't want to say inspire, that's certainly the right word, influence others to do the same. So without further ado, let's take it to middle school, specifically my sixth grade year. And basically today's stories, and there's a couple of them that over overlap and interlock, but they all deal with dress codes. And so I'm really excited about discussing the nexus of like public schools and dress codes and freedom of speech and symbolic speech and race and white supremacy and all that and how all that kind of intersects. Uh, because it's just a fascinating topic to me, both as, as the parent of school-aged children, as someone who works in a public school setting, and as someone who has obviously spent a great deal of my lifetime being educated in a public school setting, uh, today's topic just really hits me from so many different angles. And I hope it does the same for you as well. So let me give y'all a little bit of beef, not beef, brief background as to my upbringing, specifically the demographics and geography as it relates to race and residential segregation in the small town of Harrisonburg, Virginia. And without going into too much detail, because you know me, I'll get off track. And before we know it, this will be a 50 minute podcast and I won't ever have gotten to dress codes. But without getting too far off track, Harrisonburg. And I believe it's still like this, though I don't live there anymore, but just what I know about it now is kind of this interesting contradiction that many smaller cities, larger towns are. And by that, I mean, if it was, if it was much, or not even much smaller, if it was smaller, population-wise, chances are it would have almost no racial diversity. Like, think about your small, especially in the South, right? But I guess this is probably true throughout the country. Think about your small, and by small, let's say, 20,000 or less people, your small cities and towns around the country. And if you're that small, 20,000 or less residents, there's a pretty good chance that there's almost zero meaningful, significant racial diversity in your town or city. Not a guarantee, because I know there are many variables that affect that. But in many cases, that's what ends up happening. You have a very monochromatic city or town. If you get too large of a city or town, and let's say maybe 100,000 people or more, then you obviously often have a lot more racial diversity. But at the same time, because of legacies of residential segregation in our country, that diversity is, is kind of blunted or muted by this intense residential segregation that exists in the U.S. And why am I talking about all this in the context of a story about my sixth grade experiences with dress codes? Real simple reason. My city that I grew up in, my small city of Harrisonburg, Virginia, was large enough to have racial diversity. 
but small enough but small enough sorry I realized that was a longer pause than normal small enough that these legacies of residential segregation though they were they were real and they existed didn't affect public schools at least at the secondary level and then more I think about the last two minutes of what I just said I don't think I made it clear enough so here's what I mean if you live in a big city New York City for example New York City is the most diverse city in our country but if you went to New York City's public schools, you would never know that. They're some of the most segregated schools in our country, and that's because of legacies of not just racial segregation, although those are very, very real, but legacies of, of class segregation, right, and how neighborhoods are divided by money and race. And we know the intersection of money and race. And so what it means in New York, even though you're in the most diverse city in the world, or in, in America, I should say, Racially diverse city in the U.S., and I would guess there aren't too many that are even close, maybe L.A., um, maybe Miami, but, but definitely the most racially diverse city in America. If you grow up in that city, however, your education experiences might not be that racially diverse, and chances are they won't be, especially at the secondary level. You'll be going to schools, even though New York City has a very unique kind of public school system where it's not necessarily tied to geography. In effect, what happens is you go to schools with people that look like you for the most part. And that happens all over America. Um, there's, there, I encourage all of my listeners to, to read up on segregation in public schools in America in the 21st century because it's fascinating and equally as disappointing to discover that more than 50 years after the Brown versus Board of Education decision where the Supreme Court in 54 ruled that racial segregation or if I yeah, ruled that racial segregation was unconstitutional and had no place in our public educational setting, is that many of America's public school systems are still really, really segregated. And Harrisonburg, like some of these real weird small cities, big town places, had all of that racial segregation. So that when I was growing up, there were four different elementary schools and they were tied to four different, you know, can basically think in your mind, north, south, east, west, four different regions of the city and that those regions were definitely separated by race and class so that some elementary schools had a significant percentage of black students attending that school whereas some elementary schools had black students attending that school however because Harrisonburg wasn't a big enough city you know a real city for lack of a better word although I'm sure some of my Harrisonburg listeners are like it's real um, because Harrisonburg wasn't a big enough city those patterns of segregation that you saw at the elementary school level that were driven by decades, centuries of racial segregation at the residential level don't continue at the secondary school level. And there's a simple reason. There just aren't enough students. So whereas we had four elementary schools that were all tied to four different cardinal points in the city, and those elementary schools were very, very affected, very much affected by residential segregation, there was only one middle school for the entire city and only one high school for the entire city. So unlike bigger cities, whether you're talking about Miami, Richmond, Philadelphia, L.A., Reno, um, Sacramento, you pick it, New York City, where there's enough students that residential segregation can affect public school segregation from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade, there's just not enough students in Harrisonburg for that to be the case. So even if we were all segregated in elementary school, which we were, we get all thrown together in middle school. And then we get all thrown together again in high school. And it was, I'm so thankful that it happened to me. Um, I had almost no, not almost, I had no black friends in elementary school. And not because I can recall, although I'm sure there maybe was some subconscious or latent race or race-based feelings or racism in my in my mind but that's not why I didn't have any black friends in elementary school I didn't have any black friends in elementary school because there just weren't very many black students in my elementary school and so it really reduced the number which meant you know and and we've talked about this before in episode one you know and that carried over to the public parks I used and the recreational sports I participated in at least at the elementary level there were enough people in my town to be segregated at that level 
but not enough people in my town that that segregation made sense. It just, you know, it didn't make sense financially, even though I'm sure many, many white residents in Harrisonburg would have loved it to have four separate middle schools. So sixth grade was the first time I was really in a diverse educational setting. And, you know, I knew some black students a little bit, I guess, from from just in our, you know, Harrisonburg's not big enough that I didn't cross paths with, with black students my age. But but sixth grade was really the year where I got to, you know, I was in class with a large number of black students or I could choose to sit the lunch table with other other black classmates my age. And speaking of uh, school segregation, I think it's Beverly Tatum. Don't quote me on that, but y'all should also grab her book about why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria. And it talks about segregation, not between schools or between school systems or between neighborhoods, but segregation and especially self-segregation within a school environment. It's a fascinating read. It really is. Um, but I digress. So sixth grade is when I get exposed to, for lack of a better word, the full panoply of races that at that point currently existed in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And this would have been like 1990, I guess, 1989. And it was great for the most part. Um, I think it shaped how I think to this day about race as as I made friends with, with black students, black classmates, some of whom are still my friends to this day. And so, you know, I, I was wondering before today's podcast, if I had grown up in a much larger city where those segregationist patterns that influence our public education system continue on into the, into the secondary level, I wouldn't be the same person I am today. No, I'm not saying I would have been like, you know, drastically different. I may have been, though. I don't know. I just know I wouldn't have been me, right? Like that experience was really crucial to me in both good and bad ways. And today's story, as I mentioned, hinges on dress codes. And there are two specific instances that I can recall where two of my friends were in violation of our school's dress code. And without drawing too many conclusions, although, you know, y'all know me, I'm going to do that a little bit. I just want to share these stories and, and talk about what I think might have been going on in terms of how these incidents relate to white supremacy and the social construct that is whiteness and all that comes with that. And so the first one was real simple, and I'm going to date myself right now. If I have some younger listeners, you might have to Google some shit right now. But if I have listeners in my age cohort, they're immediately, immediately going to know what I'm talking about. Sixth grade, I just need, I cannot overestimate to y'all. I cannot exaggerate. I cannot use enough hyperbole to remind all of my listeners or to inform you for the first time if you're a younger generation the phenomenon that was crisscross. Oh my God. They were, I mean, it was, you know, what, for a year, maybe two, not quite a one hit wonder because they had a couple of tracks, but like almost a one hit wonder. And they were everywhere, musically, culturally. Um, they're single, they're, they're the first single I'm aware of them dropping. Maybe they had one come out earlier. And I want to say they were produced by Jermaine Dupri. I think he was the, the hit maker behind them, but, but somebody who knows a lot more about music can, can email me and correct me if I'm wrong on that. But their single jump was everywhere, at least everywhere that a sixth grader considers. Um, and they, they, that song was just one of those songs, and it happens all the time, you know, that was just a hit, and it was catchy as fuck. The Daddy Mac will make you, the Mac Daddy make you, oh. Oh, man, see, right? I couldn't help but just go into a really bad rendition of the song. But, but this song relates to my story today, because Crisscross, like many one-hittish wonders, I'm going to call them hittish. I don't want to say one-hit wonders. That seems a little insulting. But like many... Many acts who who aren't long for the public eye, who don't stick around in our cultural consciousness, they had a bit of a gimmick to them. And their gimmick was simple, brilliant, if you ask me. 
these two gentlemen, these two young rappers, and they were probably like not much older than me at the time. What, you know, sixth grade, what am I, 11 or 12? These kids couldn't have been more than 13, 14. But in their music videos, and even at award shows for a little while, you know, they kind of, they made a thing of it. They wore their clothes backwards. Their hoodies, their jeans, their jerseys. I'm sure they were starters. God, starter was such. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I do remember them wearing backwards starter jackets now that I'm thinking of it. At first, I was picturing like short sleeve Bulls basketball jerseys, but in the style of a baseball jersey, like buttoned up in the middle um, and kind of a thicker cotton or, or wool type blend. But now I'm picturing starter jackets being worn backwards. And if you are not old enough to know what a starter jacket is, once again, go ask someone of my generation, Google that shit, because that's talk about another thing that was really, and this was not a one hit wonder, right? Starter jackets were the ish for, I want to say like half a decade at least. But anyway, Chris Ross wore their clothes backwards. And like many things that musicians do, especially young musicians, especially young black musicians who make rap music. If you don't know, Chris Ross was black. Uh, I assume most of y'all knew that, but now you do if you didn't already. Younger kids, kids my age, thought this, this backward clothes gimmick was awesome. I think adults thought it was just crazy and weird and, and inappropriate. And I just made air quotes if, um, when I said inappropriate because, man, that's such a loaded phrase. And it'll come up again in today's podcast. So long story short, two of my friends at the time, both are still friends. Um, and they were really close back then. They'd grown up with each other. Um, one of them white, one of them black. And more example, too, of how in smaller cities, larger towns, how there is racial segregation. But I, I would argue it's often not quite as rigid as you see in bigger cities and bigger neighborhoods. Um, but anyway, these two friends of mine, one white, one black, wore, for lack of a better phrase, crisscross outfits to school one day. And they'd obviously coordinated it because I don't know if they, I don't feel like they had matching outfits. But they were close, like they worked together, like the outfits worked and complemented each other. Um, I wish and I hope they reach out to me after hearing this and they tell me, because their memories obviously of these outfits, well, maybe not obviously, but I'm hoping they can remind me exactly, especially when it comes to the top, what jersey or what hoodie or whatever they wore that was backwards. And they were informed at lunch, which makes sense, because that's when, you know, like I think all the grade – the lunch, lunches were divided up by grades. So there was a sixth grade lunch, a seventh grade lunch, and an eighth grade lunch. And at lunch is also, and this is still true in many schools in America today, even the one I currently work in, at lunch is where you're more, more likely than not as a student to encounter an administrator. You might make it through the rest of your day without seeing a principal or an assistant principal or a dean or what have you. But at lunchtime, often the supervision at lunchtime, often, not always, but often, is, is conducted by school administrators. So all I remember is that at lunch, these two friends of mine were told by an administrator, not necessarily super angrily, but, you know, I remember being like, you could tell he wasn't happy, were told that their clothes were in violation of the school dress code. And I want to say, and once again, hopefully these friends reach out to me and, and can kind of add some color and detail to this story. I want to say he made them turn their clothes back right way, correct way, appropriate way. There's that word again. I don't know if that second part happened, but it sounds like something would have happened because there's only one thing that school administrators love more than enforcing a dress code, and that's enforcing it and making someone immediately rectify or correct the behavior. You know, horror stories of kids walking around in like hand-me-down old PE t-shirts because heaven forbid we let them wear something that we decide is inappropriate for the next two hours. Anyway, back to my crisscross friends. A couple of things come to mind when I think of the story and it pops up in my memory. First of all, it's one of those instances, and the administrator, by the way, was white. I don't think I ever, ever had a black administrator in my experience, in my public school experience. That's another fun game to play, fun as in heartbreaking, to play with your friends wherever they grew up, is to discuss at what age you had a, a teacher who didn't look like you, not only gender, but race. 
but also what age you were exposed to an administrator who didn't look like you gender wise, race wise, um, ethnicity wise. Cause it's a really, really just fascinating, heartbreaking, interesting game to play. But anyway, this white administrator told my two friends, one of whom was white, one of whom was black, that they could not wear their crisscross inspired outfits. Do I think this administrator was actively engaging in white supremacy and racism towards the genre of hip hop music and was making a statement about the cultural supremacy of whiteness, at least actively? No. Actively, I don't think he was consciously. And I don't know, because I don't I don't even really remember who this administrator was. Um, I don't know. I just don't think consciously he was like, man. Those are outfits like black kids in those videos where let me tell them to not do that because I hate black culture. I don't think it's quite that linear and quite that simple. However, I do think that them being told that their backward clothes were inappropriate is problematic on many levels. And some of those levels are related to whiteness and white supremacy. The first level where it's problematic to tell kids that they can't wear backwards clothes to middle school. And I, is that I guarantee you nowhere was that explicitly laid out in our school's code of conduct or in the student handbook, right? Like crisscross kind of came on the scene overnight. So maybe by 95 or 96, some administrator had belatedly decided to add that to a school's code of conduct. But I guarantee you there was nothing explicitly in our code of conduct that said you cannot wear your clothes backwards. And that's where dress codes generally, well, one of the areas where dress codes generally run into problems, no matter how explicitly they are written, they can never be written in a way as to contain every possible clothing option or item that someone may or may not wear to school. And so there's always this element of judgment. And we ask teachers and administrators to use their professional judgment all the time. So this podcast today, I'm not bringing up the fact that we shouldn't ask adults in a public school setting to use their best judgment. But what I'm pointing out is that when that judgment is used, and especially when that judgment is used on things that are incredibly subjective and incredibly related to culture, i.e. clothing, that what's going to happen, whether the administrator knows it or not, whether the children know it or not, is that now other social contra- constructs related to culture are going to come into play, and in this case, race. And I guess a simple version, a less kind of um, abstract version of explaining of explaining what it is I'm trying to explain is that I can remember in middle school going through a phase, and I don't know, you know, maybe the same year, maybe earlier, maybe it was fifth grade, maybe the year after, going through a phase where me and a buddy that, that lived in my neighborhood, me and this white kid, uh, we went through a big kind of Guns N' Roses phase, kind of a hair metal phase in general, but Guns N' Roses especially. And so one of the ways we would show our devotion is to wear like, you know, ripped jean jackets with all these buttons on them and stuff. And, and we just thought it was you know, it was cool. Just like my friend who wore the, my two friends who wore their crisscross outfits. I'm sure part of the reason, the main reason they thought they should wear those to middle school is because they thought it was cool. Never once did an administrator tell me that a ripped jean jacket, which looked like shit objectively, probably as I look back on it, never once did they tell me that that was inappropriate. And I'm not arguing that they should have. But what I'm pointing out is that what happens, and this is where I think white people frequently get get confused on notions of systemic racism and notions of whiteness. What happens is this administrator and all other administrators, because they were white and because they were coming from this, this culture of whiteness to them, things associated with whiteness are often subconsciously unconsciously deemed as more appropriate than things that exist outside of whiteness. And so in this case, rock music, pop music would be considered existing within the culture of whiteness and and rap and hip hop would be considered existing without the culture of whiteness, even though we all know how much white kids love hip hop and rap. Um, And in fact, financially kind of drive the mainstream industry at least. And that's problematic for many reasons as well. And we'll get to that in later episodes. And so I'm just wondering back to my 
hip-hop, crisscross-inspired dress code violation is that if wearing your clothes backwards is something that Guns N' Roses did, would that administrator have acted the same way he did? And he very well may have. Maybe it was just backwards clothes threw him off completely. Though, if we're looking at it objectively, like there was no reason they weren't causing a disruption, which is kind of the standard that schools are held to when it comes to regulating dress and symbolic speech in general. And I would encourage anybody, by the way, who's interested in, in kind of the intersection of the First Amendment and public education, specifically when it comes to clothing and symbolic speech and symbols, to read up on a seminal Supreme Court case from 1969, Tinker v. Des Moines, a very famous case where uh, students wore black armbands to their high school in Des Moines, Iowa, in protest of the the absolute carnage and death that was taking place in Vietnam at that point in 69 during the Vietnam War. And I'm not saying this administrator in this specific instance, I don't know if this instance is an instance of a white administrator kind of communicating to both white student and black student and anyone else who heard about or saw this incident communicating notions of white supremacy. I don't know if that's the case, but I do have to wonder if he would have reacted differently if that clothing had been associated with a genre that wasn't rap and hip hop. Who knows? And and the fact that his judgment was what he had to rely on so much is just so problematic for so many reasons. And I think As I think on dress codes at at schools that I've attended and schools I've worked in, first of all, I can just tell you they fucking suck. Um, They don't achieve what anyone claims they achieve, and there's no empirical data, by the way. I encourage you to research this topic on your own. There's very little data that, that, that dress codes of any type, whether they're strict, whether they're less strict, whether they're whatever they may be, that they really have an a noticeable, discernible impact on education that happens in the classroom, despite what many hand-wringing, well-meaning, middle-class, middle-aged white folks would have you believe, and probably black, too. I shouldn't say it's just white, but, you know, it is what it is. I don't think how students dress in elementary and middle and high school really has that much effect on their education, and there's not really any stat, any data, any research, anything empirical to contradict that that kind of feeling on my part and what I've seen anecdotally. Another issue is that when the standard becomes disruption and when we talk about how dress is so tied to speech and the Supreme Court has been fairly inconsistent on how the First Amendment plays out in a public school setting, especially on school, well, not not especially, but on school grounds versus also off the school grounds is another issue. But what I'm getting to is It's almost impossible for that administrator, for any administrator who's enforcing a dress code to not fall back on cultural norms, on cultural mores, on their own individual sense of what is right and wrong. We pretend as if these dress code rules and categories relating to what is appropriate and inappropriate are objective when, in fact, they're social constructs, right? What constitutes appropriate clothing is most certainly, most definitively a social construct. And as such, that means the codes based on these social constructs risk, they don't guarantee, but they risk empowering various systems of equity that exist within the society that created the social constructs. The Confederate flag is another great example. And I don't have a personal, well, actually I do as a teacher, but I don't have a an experience that we're going to talk about in this season. But I've worked in Southern public schools for years. And I've worked in majority black public schools in Virginia. I've worked in more of a kind of, I wouldn't say 50-50, but close to a 50-50 setting between black and white in public schools in Virginia. And I've seen white kids for years. I've also worked in New York City where I don't think I ever saw this, but that's also because Um, I never taught a single white student in New York City in my five years in their public school system. And that goes back to our earlier conversation about, you know, legacy of residential segregation and what have you. But in all my years, I don't think I've ever seen a white student told 
Actually, I know I haven't, and I've never heard of it. At least I don't think. I'm, I'm, I hope some of my listeners can share some stories related to this. But I don't know of a white student, or black student for that matter, I guess, being told that the Confederate flag was inappropriate for a school setting, that the Confederate flag was disruptive in a school setting. And I guess that probably speaks more to the heart of what I'm trying to get to with this crisscross story than anything else. Like, think about what message you were sending to students, all students, white and black. If wearing your clothes backwards is deemed inappropriate and the Confederate flag isn't, think about what you're telling them about race and whiteness and legacies of racism and legacies of white supremacy and legacies of all the systems i.e. slavery, that are tied into racism and white supremacy. Because to me, it's hard to think of a lot of a lot of things that are above the list of inappropriate. It's hard to think of things, a lot of things more inappropriate than racism. There are some things, but not many, right? Maybe it's four or five. And so when you tell school-age children that the Confederate flag, which, you know, you can... You can tie yourself intellectually into knots all you want, but it, the Confederate flag, a, a very crystal clear symbol of white supremacy. When you tell students that that's okay in a school setting, that that's not disruptive, that that's not inappropriate, but then you tell them they're not allowed to wear their clothes backwards, parentheses, a style of clothing inspired by rap slash hip-hop culture slash black culture, then think about what message you're sending them. And schools have run into this problem with dress codes all the time, whether it's restrictions on certain types of hair. And that hair almost always ends up being black hair. I think it was in Texas a year or two ago where the young man was being asked to cut his locks because somehow that didn't that violated the school's dress code. Or think of how many schools have real strict rules about, you know, about wearing wave caps or do rags or something like that. And without even understanding maybe the cultural implications of why black students might wear a wave cap or a do-rag or why a, a black female student might wear a bonnet one day to school. And so that's where school dress codes in the very abstract way, but also a very concrete way for the student who's experiencing them can kind of take these abstract notions of whiteness, these abstract notions of cultural norms, these abstract notions of white supremacy and communicate them to students without ever saying a word about whiteness or supremacy or race or racism. Now, the second story, also from middle school, also from sixth grade, a little more obvious, in my opinion, that notions of white supremacy were informing how this administrator acted. But the second story still leaves me with, you know, like always, as many questions as answers. So... And I don't even know which one of these events happened first, to be honest, and it doesn't necessarily matter. But one of the same friends who wore his crisscross outfit and was told by a white administrator that somehow that was inappropriate, also one day wore a Bebe's Kid t-shirt to school. And once again, if you're a different generation than mine, you're probably going to have to Google Bebe's Kids. I encourage you to Google its creator. The, the brain behind this amazing movie, a man named Robin Harris, um, just a brilliant comedic genius. This movie, uh, when did it come out? Maybe 91, um, cartoon movie that deals with the many experiences of what it means to be black in America. And I'm not going to go into, you know, a book report about this movie, but I just want to give you a little bit of context about the t-shirt that my friend was wearing. And so he's wearing a T-shirt promoting this movie. And on the front, I think, are just some some cartoon characters from the movie. No big deal. And by the way, the white administrator who enforced this dress code violation in this story, I guarantee you, I would bet nine out of my ten fingers, had never seen Baby's Kids and still hasn't seen it. I guarantee you, there's just no way. But that's kind of a neither here nor there. So my friend's wearing this Baby's Kids T-shirt. And on the front of the T-shirt are some of the animated characters. On the back is a quote from the movie that one of the younger characters said. And for those of y'all who don't know the movie well, basically in Bebe's Kids, the main character, which is kind of inspired by the creator, this man, Robin Harris, um, 
he's trying to date this girl. And I can't even remember. I should do some more research before these podcasts, right? But either he, this girl he's trying to date, this girl that he's crushing on that he's going to take to, uh, oh, snap, where is it? To the amusement park. It's either her friend or her cousin. Somebody she's close with has a bunch of kids and, and is a single mother, and she had promised to watch these kids. And these kids are in in almost every way, kind of the stereotype. And even today, right, that phrase baby's kids amongst a certain generation is, still has some cultural cachet, right? Like it still means something. Um, so this man, Robin, I'll call him, is trying to date this girl. And so they, in order for him to go on this date, he also has to bring, I want to say there's four of them. And they are bad. And they are all raised by a single mother who lives in the hood, quote, quote, unquote, or lives in, you know, in public housing. And so in some ways, these kids are, are the worst stereotype. At least that's what you think as an audience at first. The worst stereotype of what, God, I could spend 10 seasons talking about stereotypes of black single mothers and, and black children who are raised in poverty on, on public assistance and stuff like that. But these kids kind of fit those stereotypes, at least like I said at first glance. The longer the movie goes on, you realize how incomplete and simplistic that stereotype is. And that's one of the geniuses of the movie. I think it kind of attacks some of the stereotypes that exist, not only without the black community, and I mean outside of the black community, but also within the black community. Anyway, long story short, he takes these kids who are bad as fuck to the amusement park just so he can impress this girl he's crushing on. And a lot of things happen at the amusement park, including these young black kids, none of whom are even remotely old enough to be an adult, right? Like the oldest one's maybe 13. Um, these kids get racially profiled at the amusement park by the park security, and there's a whole court scene that's really kind of poignant in ways that I didn't understand as a 12-year-old when I first saw this movie or a 14-year-old. And so these are things that on, upon re-watching and, re- and researching the movie a little bit more, I've discovered. Anyway, one of the quotes from the movie, and I don't know which kid said it, probably the baby who was like, one of those Stewie Griffin type characters where it's a baby or a toddler, but the, it, it can talk and acts like an adult and gets all the best lines. At some point in the movie, this baby character, this baby kid said, we don't die, we multiply. And that was the quote that was on the back of my friend's T-shirt. And the we in that quote could refer to specifically, baby, by the way, with their mother, hence baby's kids, baby's children. They don't die, they multiply, meaning that she's a single black mother, she's going to have more. Specifically her or someone like her. Most people took it, and this is how I think the, the shirt kind of presented it. This is how the, the quote from the movie got used in popular culture. Most people took it more as a statement of kind of black empowerment, that no matter what white supremacy, no matter what centuries of violence, and murder have been committed against the black communities of America, that black people are not going to die. They are not going to go extinct. That slavery and Jim Crow are not going to destroy black people, but they're going to continue to survive. And in that survival, they're going to continue to make children and pass on legacies of strength and resilience to these children. That's, to me, what we don't die, we multiply means. Either way, It's hard to see how that statement is on its face inappropriate. And to me, anyway, it's hard to see that statement as anything less than, than empowering. I guess you could make an argument that it's, it's, it's meant to be insulting to the children of single black mothers. But the fact that it says we don't die in the first part of that sentence, I think, is implying it's talking about a bigger picture than just the children of single black mothers. I think it's, and I need to do more research on when it was exactly said, but I think the quote is definitely in reference to the black experience in general. Anyway, my friend in sixth grade wearing this t-shirt that had no curse words, no tobacco or alcohol on it, nothing, was also told that he can no longer wear that t-shirt. So whereas the crisscross incident, maybe race played a role in it, and I think it probably did, but in a more indirect general sense. In this incident, and this incident has stuck with me for my whole life. I haven't even seen Bebe's kids yet. And I was just flabbergasted that this white administrator could tell a young black 
what, 12-year-old, that he can't wear a shirt that says, we don't die, we multiply. And that somehow, this white administrator saw that shirt. Because I remember him having a conversation with, with my friend about, you know, why it was inappropriate and how he wouldn't like it if a, if a white if a white student wore something that said, you know, white power or whatnot. And it just is fascinating to me that this white administrator couldn't differentiate between black power and white supremacy. And once again, I didn't necessarily re- realize all of these thoughts at the time. This is These are thoughts that have come to me since then as I've reflected on it. But it's just the notion and I see this with white people all the time. Um, it popped up in the summer of 2020 a lot when you see white people who are opposed or claim to be opposed to the slogan Black Lives Matter. We know in reality, the truth is they're opposed to many of the things, the, the justice and the equity that Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter movement is demanding. But many people use the slogan as an excuse. And many white people, you hear them all the time talk about how they're just a they're fine. They're not racist and they're fine with with inclusivity and they're fine with racial justice. They just don't want one racial group to get treated better than the other. But they only bring these comments up in reference to black civil rights and black empowerment. And I've never once, unless you're going to talk about like, you know, the early parts of Malcolm's autobiography, but I've never once heard black people talk about black power in the context of black supremacy. You just don't hear that very often. And yet white people immediately go to that. They see black power to white people equals black supremacy. And I can't, for the longest time, I couldn't understand why. And I'm still not sure I can understand why. Why a phrase, we don't die, we multiply, would be considered the equivalent of black supremacy is beyond me. Especially if you know the context of the black experience in this country. Shit! If you know the context of black experience in this country, black supremacy might be something that you're willing to accept because why the fuck wouldn't you want to be empowered as fuck after after the black people of America have generally speaking gone through what they have in this country? But that's kind of a, you know, we can talk about that at a later date. And the only thing I can get to is to why black empowerment and black power and black strength frighten so many white people is that I think they're they're looking at rights and specifically rights rights related to race as like a zero sum game, and and I think they're tacitly recognizing they're not even consciously recognizing. I think it's implicit that their success and social standing and that everyone's success and social standing is frequently tied to white supremacy and tied to notions of whiteness. And so I think for many white people, whether they admit it or not. They cannot conceive of a society where success and rights aren't tied to notions of race and a racialized hierarchy. And so, in other words, what I'm getting at is I think white people, even ones who vote for Trump and, and are members of the KKK and are the most racist, non-progressive white people you could ever imagine, I think they recognize white privilege. And they recognize they're on the top of the pyramid. And it's because of that that that's the only way they can imagine society being organized. And so whenever they hear black people lower on this hierarchical rung of social power, of political power, of economic power, demanding rights and demanding power, in their mind, their reaction is very much like how maybe slave owners in the antebellum South would have reacted to any any statement of black power must also be an attack on white power. And in some ways it is, right? Like black power is not attacking White people, however, just white power, just inequitable white power, just supremacy, actually, right? Like, But so many white people are like that administrator with my sixth grade friend. And when they hear anything related to black power, it just makes them so nervous that they're immediately like, nope. And they shut down and they get defensive and they build a wall. And they tell a sixth grade student that, no, you cannot wear that T-shirt that celebrates black resilience and celebrate celebrates black strength. No, you cannot. That equals black supremacy. And so once again, just like with the crisscross outfit, this time though, I think it's, you know, more complicated because I really, 
I can build the bridge that lets me see how a, a middle school administrator is going to see backwards clothes as possibly problematic. I can't build that bridge on and objectively. I mean, I can't build that bridge with this T-shirt. But once again, we have white adults telling white children, telling black children and anyone else who hears about the story what matters and who matters and whose strength and power matters. Because once again, I've been teaching for 19 years. I spent 18 years in public schools before that. Well, 14 years, whatever. So that's more than two thirds of my life easily in a public school setting. And I've never seen a student disciplined in any way, reprimanded in any way for wearing the Confederate flag. But you're going to tell me that a black student can't wear a baby kid's t-shirt that says, we don't die, we multiply? Fuck out of here. If you don't think systemic racism is somehow at play. Fuck out of here. So, like always, I used up more of y'all's time than I ever planned to. I enjoyed our monologue today. Of course, I always enjoy it, right? I get to hear myself talk. I encourage you to reach out to me. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your stories, your experiences. I want to hear your questions. I want to hear your criticisms. I want to hear it all. James Lincoln 313 at gmail.com. James Lincoln 313 at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media. As always, I thank you for your time, for taking this journey with me. For bearing with me as it makes a million twists and turns. And I look forward to talking to you again in episode three. Peace and love. I'm out.